0: Creative Babble. I'm Neil McTighe. And I'm Javier Leva, And this is the Ponzi Playbook. Javier, did you see the results of that auction that was over in Hillsborough, North Carolina, just like 30 minutes from us?
1: Yeah, it's like right next door. It was incredible, Neil. You sent me the link and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, the things that this person was selling, I mean, what a life. Yeah. I'm looking at a $36,000 diamond bracelet. What seems like dozens of Rolexes with one going for as much as like 41,000.
0: Yeah, this is no joke. And then look at those cars. I mean, we've got Bentleys, we've got an old Stingray Corvette. We've got, I mean, the guy even had little golf carts that were all, you know, upfitted and his coin collection.
1: I mean, he had tons of gold coins and look at all that
0: memorabilia.
1: Well, what about like the Rolling Stones signed Fender guitar, or the one by signed by Bruce Springsteen, or Meatloaf, and Aerosmith? I mean,
0: this is awesome. Yeah, I mean, this is just incredible stuff. To think that you know somebody would have all these possessions, and you know, not even to mention, look at that wine collection. I mean, oh yeah, it's like it was a separate auction uh, just a couple months thereafter. But I mean, these wines are. $2 million
1: worth of wine. Of wine? I mean, from one estate. And they're all like fancy French wines, says chateauneuf de Pop. I mean, that's like my personal favorite. This is awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I drink that every night, but but it's still...
1: uh, (laughs) I drink the Costco version.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I bet it's probably very good.
1: What kind of... I mean, this is crazy, Neil. This is like when you drive to an estate sale and then you're like, What did this person do for a living? Like, Who was this person that could afford all these incredible things?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Javier, the guy behind this ran one of Charlotte, North Carolina's largest Ponzi schemes. His name is Rick Siski, And that's what we're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah, they used to call him Big
0: Rick, right? Big Rick. Big Rick. Yeah. I mean, if you got all these possessions and you're walking around town... That's a perfect way to describe that character, right? Yeah.
1: This guy pretty much personifies like Scrooge McDuck. I imagine this guy just taking a nosedive into a a pool, an indoor pool of golden coins, you know?
0: Absolutely. Like those weren't uh, held assets to appreciate in value. That was just uh, for swimming. I like the way you put that because it's such an opulent and decadent over the top lifestyle that you can see through this auction. and. We'll make sure that we tweet out a link to this auction on Twitter at Ponzi Playbook for our listeners.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Big Rick, he had a big reputation, right, for being a great businessman. They said that he had this uncanny ability to just discern situations in advance. He could see the future. He was always five steps ahead of everyone. Very strategic person. You know, as a young man, he was a chess master, right? Incredible. And it's rumors that he was once playing 10 opponents at the same time. That's how sophisticated and smart this guy was. He was always 10 steps ahead. Yeah,
0: you know, that's a perfect way to put it. And the fact that you could be 10 steps ahead, but also against all these opponents. I mean, isn't that the perfect metaphor, chess, for the type of life that he led?
1: Isn't that the perfect skill set for a Ponzi schemer?
0: It really is. You can almost see the person, you know, hunched over, you know, tapping the tips of their fingers, thinking about their next move and how they're going to win. Yeah. Rick Siski, Big Rick, is the Ponzi chess player. Rick Siski moves to Charlotte, North Carolina back in the 1980s. His wife is named Diane Siski. They really set their roots and started to have success. And Big Rick was a successful investor in some technology companies leading into the 1990s and as a financial advisor. So successful and reputable that they actually named one of the YMCA branches in his family's honor. Because he was a donor, he was a philanthropist, and he was an adamant supporter of the YMCA, where he used to play basketball when he was young.
1: I'm assuming he was a big name in town, and not just for his philanthropy, but also for owning one of Charlotte's most spectacular mansions, right?
0: That is a truly spectacular mansion. It's in South Park, which is, you know, Charlotte's uber-wealthy area and it sits on this massive plot of land. And I actually once went down there to check it out, and the <laughs> did lawn- you really? I did.
1: <laughs> that doesn't surprise me.
0: I mean, I happened to be in Charlotte, right? It okay. wasn't like- <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping this in.
0: <laughs> the lawn was perfectly flat, and it didn't have a weed on it, and it must have been six, to eight acres of just impeccable perfection.
1: Oh my god, the aerial is a lot more impressive, actually. Yeah. Oh my god, look at that staircase.
0: It's seven point three seven acres.
1: Yeah, and the actual mansion itself is six thousand square feet, so it's it's huge, right?
0: Yeah. And it's got all these other buildings too, like a pool house, you know.
1: Yeah. But, you know, it's not to my liking. I mean, this looks like a typical rich dude's house, you know, with just very warm looking, lots of antique type of furniture. But I mean, the place is massive. I mean, his wine cellar alone is, I mean, just ridiculous. It's
0: ridiculous. And on top of that, it's very kind of Baroque or Rococo. It's got all the Gilded this, the ostentatious of that it's like you said, it's a type of exhibitionist wealth that you know you have to be obsessed with demonstrating your wealth to want to live in a place like that. I would be more interested in being comfortable, but this was about showing off, and I think
1: it tells us a lot about who big Rick was. he was paying twelve thousand five hundred dollars a month on mortgage for this mansion, and he had eight hundred thousand dollars worth of cars in his garage. I mean, it's ridiculous.
0: It is ridiculous. You're right, Javier. I mean, this takes a ton of money to have all of these things. And he did it by building what was called Wall Street Capital. It was an investment advisory firm in Charlotte. He founded it in the late 1990s. And it just skyrocketed because he had already had success. But then he was able to sort of build his brand around Wall Street Capital and he sold himself as the advisor for high net worth individuals in Charlotte and he provided that sort of boutique one-on-one personalized wealth management service that those who, you know, had a lot of money they would say, "Hey, I want Big Rick to handle my money because look how successful he is and I want my money to work for me." So he was very successful in recruiting these high net worth individuals.
1: Yeah, Big Rick was a larger than life personality. And he did, like you said, attract a lot of investors with a lot of money. So let's break down the scheme.
0: Yeah, let's do it. So back around 2010, he formed a company called TSI Holdings LLC here in North Carolina. And TSI Holdings LLC per a regulation D- public filing with the SEC, was listed as a pooled investment fund. So Siski would go about town attracting investors who would put their money in this pooled investment fund, and then Siski was making statements to the effect of, I'm investing in private companies that are profitable, I'm building and selling companies, I'm also managing your money in the public markets. So Siski was just selling himself as a savvy money manager, and people just handed him money like it was nothing.
1: Yeah, between January 2011 through November 2015, $31 million was deposited into one of the TSI holding bank accounts. And 75% of that money came from approximately 100 investors.
0: Yeah, so to have investors hand you over 31 million dollars, you know, clearly these are investors who have money. But not all of them. These are folks who simply were entrusting Rick Siskey with their life savings, those people who were looking forward to retirement. And Siskey was promising them what he would call safe, guaranteed fixed rates of returns, and he even said that they were asset-backed, which as we'll see later, is sort of a clever way to lie because, well, there were assets, but they weren't legitimate assets backing any type of investment.
1: You know what I've learned from this show? What's that? If I ever hear the word safe, guaranteed, fixed rate returns, <laughs> I'm going to run the other way.
0: <laughs> it's so true. Javier, can you tell our listeners about how Rick Siski spent this money?
1: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. $16 million of all that money went into his own personal bank account. And $10 million of that went to his prior investors. So he had to pay that. And then he had $4 million in the TSI account just so that he could maintain a balance. But this is where the fun starts because, you know, Siski, Big Rick, he liked to party. You know, he liked to party in the casinos.
0: Oh, yeah? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> what kind of partying? The guy spent $15 million at the casinos. But guess how much of that he won? Just guess. Guess how much money he made back. I mean,
0: this guy's a master chess player. He's a Ponzi schemer. So I'm guessing he beat the
1: house. Oh, well, he made a lot of money. He made $12 million from the casinos. But remember, he spent (laughs) $15 million. So that means he lost $3 million at the casinos. Yikes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the odds are stacked against you. And it shows a personality that's really attracted to risk that thinks little of the value of money, too, right, is willing to sort of gamble it away, whereas other people are entrusting him with it. This is really telling stuff that you're sharing here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I freak out when I have a high credit card balance, but not Siski. He has a million dollars on his American Express. Woo, Yeah. $800,000 $800,000 to his wine dealer, you know?
0: So yeah, not your local little wine shop, I take it here.
1: No, no, this is a really fine wine that we're talking about. And he spent 700000 maybe more, to his jeweler. I mean, that's Whew. nuts. Yeah, and 148000 to charter his personal jet. So Javier,
0: one of the things I noted is he was a taxpayer, though. Didn't he pay some money to the
1: IRS? Yeah, you know, I'm not a rich guy, but I kind of assume that rich people wiggle their way out of taxes, but not Siski. He paid some, maybe uh, a little over $600,000 to the IRS on personal taxes. But the guy, you know, he had tons of expenses. But yeah, in, in all seriousness, though, I mean, we talk a lot about Ponzi schemes and a lot of the mechanics are the same for some of these. But what really makes this story interesting is the downfall. So, Neil, take us back to 2004 when things started to really turn for Siski. I mean, he started getting in trouble with different regulatory bodies, right?
0: Yeah, that's true. In 2004, he had a run-in with the National Association of Security Dealers, which, you know, put him on a two-year industry ban. And then by 2011, Siski settles accusations that were put forth by the Department of Labor, and he paid a $243,000 fine to the Department of Labor.
1: Yeah, so... He's getting in trouble but not enough trouble to slow down his Ponzi's game, right?
0: That is right. So he pays that fine, which is probably very smart. He was able to stop the probing into the books by the Department of Labor. But somewhere after 2011, the IRS started poking around Siski's books and it actually led Javier to the IRS CI, which is the IRS Criminal Investigations Unit. So they started to conduct an investigation and they identified evidence that suggested Siski was running a Ponzi scheme.
1: And yeah, and by 2015, now the FBI inserted themselves in there and they're doing this forensic accounting, validating what money is coming in, what money is going out. And that's when things just don't add up for Siski, right? Yeah, that's
0: right. And when the FBI gets involved and you already have the IRS Criminal Investigations Unit on you, it's going to get ugly and it's going to get criminal. So if you're guilty and you know it, then... Clap your hands. (laughs) Clap your hands. So by the end of October 2016, the TSI Holdings account had only $9,121.66 in it. I mean, this is an account that had seen inflows of Tens and tens of millions of dollars.
1: Yeah, what happened to the $31 million that was there just a couple of years back?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Javier. And what about the Siski personal account? So that account only had $83,668 in it by early November of 2016. Yes, yeah, something then happens on December 21st, 2016, Javier. Something it caused Siski a lot of problems. You know, with the FBI on his tail, as well as the IRS, at that time, it looks like Siski was really losing the chess match. And the result is he's dwindled the accounts down. He's not raising any more money. And he's already spent all that cash. And it's a lot of cash that goes out.
1: Yeah, this is pretty incredible. I mean, it sounds like all that cash is gone. So what does the FBI do? It's a complex answer because the FBI is involved in
0: stopping the crime. So the FBI just collects evidence and right. recommends an indictment. And By on the, the basis, DOJ, right? Yeah, on the yeah. basis of that evidence. And then the DOJ, they usually work in tandem so they know it's coming. And they prepare what is needed for a grand jury to review the evidence, to prepare an indictment.
1: So, Neil, Siski pretty much drained his bank accounts, right? And now December 21st 2016 arrives. Where do they go from here?
0: Yeah, December 21st 2016 is a key date because the FBI issues an affidavit by one of its agents requesting that the courts allow seizure of a lot of, you know, Siski's assets including his home. So Siski knows that he is losing this match and he's going down. The writing is on the wall. It's ugly. Shortly after the FBI's affidavit was filed, the court approves the seizure of Siski's assets. Then that makes the local news. It's all over the Charlotte Observer and the local TV stations. Rick Siski's reputation is destroyed.
1: Yeah, he really took a big reputation hit. And just a few days later, Rick Siski took his own life from a self inflicted gunshot at his Charlotte mansion. He was just 58 years old. Wow, Neil, that's kind of big news because this really was not something that anybody saw coming. I mean, how common, just from your experience, because you read up on Ponzi schemes all the time, how common is it for the Ponzi schemer, the accused schemer, to end their own life in the middle of an investigation?
0: Yeah, it's not common, Javier. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's unprecedented, but this is a really, really tragic story. I mean, he's 58 years old.
1: I can only imagine because now he's gone and we know he has all these assets, right? The Very valuable stuff. Wine, cars, memorabilia, and what happens now? So the
0: FBI investigation stalled. And this got really complicated really quickly. Diane Siski was actually the beneficiary of numerous, very sizable life insurance policies that were payable upon his death, even if that death were self-inflicted.
1: Wait a minute, Neil. I mean, you're saying that he had a very sizable life insurance plan, but I thought life insurance doesn't pay out if there was a suicide.
0: Rick and Diane Siski had, you know, the Cadillacs of life insurance policies. In one case, they were spending over $120,000 a year just on life insurance premiums. I mean, this policy was going to pay out, which, you know, leads us to a lot of different questions, which we can get to in a bit. But it really was very complex because here's this windfall of money that, you know, was about to come from the life insurance policies. There was no indictment, no criminal charges, and people were really, really upset. So what ended up happening is the Siski entities were forced into involuntary bankruptcy to unwind the finances and attempt to repay investors because they were afraid that Diane Siski was just going to keep the money, right? I mean, she's the beneficiary.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're talking about $46 million of life insurance that's being paid to her potentially, right? This is actually enough money to repay everyone who lost money in this deal, right?
0: Yeah. It's somewhat unusual. And it makes you wonder, you know, what were Siski's intentions when he was purchasing those life insurance policies?
1: So one could wonder, I mean, one scenario is that he took out this enormous life insurance policy And he knew that he screwed over all his investors. And could this have been like his way to repay everyone, his last attempt to be the good guy?
0: I think that's a really interesting interpretation. And you have to wonder, did Siski feel guilty about it? And his death were more about making things right. But, you know, where it gets tied up is that the beneficiary was his wife, Diane Siski. And... It also included uh, some of his business associates as well as his daughter. Uh, His son was not one of the beneficiaries, which I found to be quite interesting. But it's a lot of money and we will never know that answer because, well, Big Rick's dead and Diane Siski's not talking.
1: And what are some of the other theories out there about the way this case kind of came to an end?
0: You know, Javier, I think the other theory is just that Siski was a fraudster, and he purchased those life insurance policies with fraudulent proceeds, and his goal was simply to enrich his wife and his family and his close associates upon his death. And it just so happened that that death was a suicide, but that wasn't a part of the original plan. So when you look at it through that lens, it's not so kind or generous.
1: Altruistic. Yeah.
0: Exactly. We know that this is now in bankruptcy and bankruptcy takes a long time. The bankruptcy trustee is trying to liquidate the assets and that can take many, many years. Those investors want their money back. And many of them started to actually sue different entities. Diane Siski was sued personally. Investors actually even sued MetLife, which was the company for which Rick Siski was selling a lot of his investment products and insurance products under that Wall Street Capital name. Some investors even sued third parties, like entities that Siski invested in and reaped millions in benefit from. And the point is, is that they say, well, Siski used our money for those investments, and we should get the proceeds of that. But A lot of this just hasn't gotten anywhere.
1: So it sounds like they're really not getting anywhere, but there's still this 46 plus million dollars just sitting out there, right, of life insurance?
0: Everybody knew that there was that huge pot of money, you know, just under $50 million from the life insurance proceeds. And the courts were out to get that cash because that was the money that was going to repay the investors. It wasn't going to come from, you know, the casino losses. (laughs) It wasn't going to come from you know, the fancy and lavish trips that he took. That was just burnt money. So what ends up happening is Diane Siski, Diane Siski's daughter, numerous other entities, they want full immunity from any possible civil litigation or even criminal. So they're fighting back. They don't want to release all the funds. They're willing to give up some. The courts are saying, no, we want it all. They go back and forth and back and forth. So by December of 2018, they finally come to an agreement and there is a settlement and a release that resolves the matters as it relates to the insurance proceeds. And the estate ends up getting a significant amount of that money, but not all of it. Diane and his daughter end up getting millions too.
1: So were the investors made whole?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, a lot of money was collected and they were able to distribute money to investors There's still a lot of litigation going on. Some people are saying they're still owed money. It's unclear and it's not resolved. And it's many years later. Uh, This is a really, really difficult and complex financial
1: fraud. So in chess, you have to protect the king. But that's not the most powerful. No,
0: it's not. It's the queen. Because the queen can move forward, backward, diagonally. The queen is the most powerful piece. And this is in the queen city. This is in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we have a number of banks. It is a financial epicenter of the United States, and Big Rick is the king. But when we unravel it, what do we find? We find that Diane Siskey was the one who played the chess match in the end, was able to repay investors and make the final moves.
1: So Neil, what's next? What are we talking about next time? Well, I was wondering, do you want to take this down the crypto
0: road? I mean, everybody's talking about, you know, is crypto, Bitcoin, are they Ponzi's? Do you
1: want to go down that road? Yes, I would love to talk about crypto because it's so misunderstood and so vague that I could see how Ponzi schemers could lean on it to rip people off. So make sure to leave us a review and follow us on Twitter at Ponzi Playbook. And
0: whatever you do. Don't start a Ponzi scheme.